From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonida Inge. And I'm Jeff Tabiri. Do you like buying flowers for some of the people you love? Or do you like receiving them? If so, you're in for a treat this hour. We're turning our attention to bouquets and blooms, where to buy them, how to care for them, and which are best to give when you want to say, I love you. Or just let's be friends. We're going to talk to a local florist about how to get the perfect pop of color into your Valentine's Day bouquet. And later, we'll hear from a horticulture professor who tells us how roses became our go-to bloom for the day of love. Joining us now in studio is Adana Omeni. Adana, welcome to Do South. Thank you. You're the owner of One Blossom, Two Bloom Floral Design, a floral company that hosts pop-up markets and community events across the Triangle. Uh, This Valentine's season, I imagine it's the busiest time of year for you? Yes. So for most florists, we have, um, like y'all are about to enjoy your Super Bowl. Valentine's Day is our Super Bowl, our first major event, as well as Mother's Day. But Valentine's Day is our first major event. Well, thanks for bringing us flowers you shouldn't have. They're beautiful. (laughs) So what do you have here? So today I have a mixture of flowers. Um, I've chosen a color palette of pinks and reds. We have wax flower um, or St. John's wort. We have pink tulips. We have uh, petite roses. And we also have ranunculus. And then we have some greenery. Mm. Tell me a little bit about these colors, red versus pink versus green. What do they signal? Pink is like a young love or so, but red is passion. What's one early challenge you faced in working with roses? It's so many challenges that you have um, as a business. Um, my first challenge that I've ever had, and I think is my first Valentine's Day, we'll use this instance, um, I found a wholesaler. I ordered roses. They shipped me a box of roses, and half of them had been uh, ruined. Oh. During transit. Are those the most expensive flowers that would probably come to you? No, actually. I mean, so think of flowers seasonally. During Valentine's Day, roses have a premium. Um, as a florist, you try, we try to order them earlier so we don't pass the premium on. So when you see florists be like, pre-order now, and you see it as early as like January 15th, uh-huh. it's because we're putting in our pre-orders mm. and then we'll already know. There's always last minute people who are like, you know what? Uh, I got $50. Can you make my wife some flowers? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, maybe. <laughs> but um, just ordering ahead allows us in, in December, for example, when there's a plethora of red, you know, flowers are for, uh, roses are like 49 cents, right? But after that time, as we get towards February, those prices increases. Wholesale for us. The rose could be as much as $3 for one rose wow. per stem. Oh, so my. six times as much, mm-hmm. roughly speaking. Yes. That's really interesting. I- I'm interested, to, to my brain, it's just like, oh, probably the most generic order is a dozen roses. What- what's the most common order that you get? And then what's the most unique or rarest or wackiest order that you've ever received? Um, so I would say the most common order, of course, is, you know, everybody wants a dozen of roses. Um, we kind of tend to not do that so much because it's so cliche like um if you order roses from us early then yes we got we'll do it for you but when it gets closer to valentine's day i can give you a dozen roses but will you will the value be there for me to give you say i have a dozen heart roses roses that bloom in the heart or i have a dozen uh freedom long stem roses that 
are going to bloom in 70 centimeters. Like, like, will you value that? As opposed to, you're like, well, I'm just going to go to the grocery store. I'm going to go to Trader Joe's, and I'm going to grab my wife some roses. You can grab those roses by the salad. I'm never going to tell you not to do that. <laughs> buy the salad. I like that. You, that's your favorite place to buy flowers, Leonita, the I grocery know, store. I know, because I'm kind of cheap. What else? Well, no. It's not that you're cheap. I mean, it's what it, um, in business you learn what, you know, what it's okay that that's what you can um, expense for yourself. Because I'm going to always encourage people to grab flowers, you know. I want you to grab flowers because um, I invested my time in finding a whole a, a farmer locally to North Carolina who at this time is tulip season. Tulips are about to come out of the ground. Some people grow can grow tulips in their in their basement or in their hot houses, and they put in that work. So I want to give you a bouquet of tulips or a mixed bouquet that that you'll that has a story behind them. It's not the flowers that you grab by your salad. So you're saying your most popular item this Valentine's Day is going to be a dozen roses. People don't want a dozen tulips. Or what's your favorite to uh, actually put together for someone? So our most popular bouquet um, is just a uh, florist choice. That's always our most popular mm-hmm. bouquet. What's that? Florist, florist oh, choice. Oh, the florist choice. Florist like yes. choice. Florist choice. So a florist choice is is you trusting me, right, to deliver your feelings to the person that you love most. It's not just flowers that a florist delivers. I had this gentleman who just started, he was older, and he just started dating this lady, and she was older. So it was like young love, but they were older. He's all the way in Virginia. She's in North Carolina. And he was like, can you really help me out? I really love this lady, um, and I'm a trucker. I'm on the road, and I need to send flowers to her. And he was like, we just started dating, and I don't want her to forget. And I was like, he was like, can you give me a dozen roses? And this was on February 14th. And I was like, I don't have a dozen roses. I've already given those out. But if you trust me, I can give you a florist choice. Now, if what you did go, you give her? What did you give her? So I gave her our, our red and yellow uh, brandy roses. I gave her uh, red and yellow tulips. I gave her sunflowers. I gave her wax flower, and I gave her carnations, just a little pop of uh, red carnations. And we put them all together and with, with greenery. I put it in a candy dish um, so that it has a dual thing. Like, you know, you're so sweet. This is sweet Sounds love. That's nice, Jeff. You got somebody giving you an idea? <laughs> Maybe. I'm, I might be taking notes over here. Okay. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, and good luck. I know this is the busiest time of the year probably for you, and you're trying to bring love to so many folks. Um, Adana Omini, owner of One Blossom 2 Bloom Floral Design. Adana, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to you, too. You're listening to Do South on WUNC. I'm Leonita Inge. And I'm Jeff Tabiri. Valentine's Day is just around the corner. And even with all the creative gift options available to us here in 2024, flowers remain one of the holiday's most popular presents. Well, but if you're planning on buying a few blooms for your beloved one this year, you may want to start your search for the perfect bouquet early. Well, we're here with Dr. Melinda Knuth, Assistant Professor of Horticultural Science at North Carolina State University. She's going to take us on a 
tiptoe through the tulips, so to speak, and share some tips and trends for this season. Well, Dr. Knuth, welcome to Do South. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. I'm very excited to be here today. You're kind of dressed appropriately. You have on this this pinkish, uh, it's not reddish, but it's, um, I guess, a, a color that I think would make a nice flower personally. Yes, that was actually on purpose. That was on purpose. I did. Yes. Um, I tried to dress a little floral themed for you guys today. Well, thank, thank you. you. Well, Valentine's Day, you know, is huge for many people and the floral industry. But just how many flowers are actually sold this time of year? Do you know that? I do, actually. Yes. So uh, I can tell you from last year, which last year was our record Hmm. of the amount of flowers sold in the United States. This has continually rised over the past 10 years. And it was $1.5 billion worth of flowers. So where's... Where does all this come from? Like, where is the history? Has this been going on for 100 years, for, for decades? Like, th- this is a, a, a huge amount of, of, of flowers. Yeah. Yes. So um, flowers are well acquainted in our U.S. culture, uh, particularly with roses. So our rose obsession actually comes from where uh, we originated from, if you want to think about uh, American history and our orig- origination mm-hmm. in the U.K., where we had uh, an obsession, or our ancestors did, with many of roses and gardens there. And that transcended over into the United States. And that's why the rose is the number one uh, flower that's sold uh, in the United States. And it is the most popular one that's sold at Valentine's Day. Uh, I would just note maybe some of our ancestors, right? I mean, my, my family, much of my family is from, from Italy. I don't know if your ancestors are from the UK. Are there other... Ethnic, not ethnicities. Are there other geographic regions that have uh, had a, a big impact on what flowers are common here, or not so much? Mm, not so much as our um, Western Europe um, influence, I would say. There and yeah, that's where you know a portion of our ancestry came from. Not all of it, and I agree with that. Uh, but that's where much of our influence in flower purchasing comes from. Also from the Dutch with tulips. Mm. So I liked how you said tiptoeing through the tulips. <laughs> you know, we know that, you know, there are many places where people can purchase their flowers um, during this time of year. Like from the supermarket, my favorite place to get flowers, you know, because you're going to get the food and you're like, oh, look at the display, especially for Valentine's Day. But um Tell us the truth. Is there uh, much difference between where you shop for your flowers? Like, are there ways to tell if the quality is different at the grocery store or if you go to a florist? Yes. So there's different locations that you can buy flowers from. And usually as a from a floral industry uh, viewpoint, uh, we view that Uh, supermarket and uh, box store. And when I say box store, I mean like Home Depot and Lowe's. You can buy roses from there around Valentine's Day. For those of you who like to do some do-it-yourself stuff, you can go there and buy flowers, as well as um, Walmart and Target, etc. And usually from those locations, you are going to get um, pre-made bouquets and flowers that are ready at the moment. And so those kind of flowers are for those of us who maybe procrastinate a little bit or also uh, for 
those people who are looking for convenience. So I'm already at the grocery mm-hmm. store. I'm already buying these other products. Let me pick up my Valentine's Day flowers at the same time. Uh, there's, of course, other locations to buy. There's locations online. And then our, there's, our, of course, our traditional, uh, the brick-and-mortar florist. And for those types of locations, they need a little bit more time, but you're getting that attention to detail, that personalization, that personal touch with those types of arrangements and those types of flowers. Dr. Melinda Knuth, Assistant Professor of Horticultural Science at North Carolina State University, is here with us on Due South. I'm interested in flower sourcing. What can you tell us about where our flowers come from and and how much we we ought to be paying attention to that? Yeah, so uh, most of our flowers come from South America through uh, our trade uh, patterns and through our trade agreements. um, We have a very strong, uh, very well-established relationship with Colombia and Ecuador, where we get most of our flowers. So you're saying for Valentine's Day in North Carolina, our flowers in stores here probably came from South America? Some of them, yes. And perhaps I would say most of them did. Um, And so with those flowers, um, we have this we have this relationship with these two countries. And so they grow the majority of the flowers that we get into the United States and use for flowers through out all of the entire year. And is that because it's cheaper to grow them in South America or is that because of environmental factors or something else? It's cold here. We can't. You grew up in Florida. It ain't cold there. I mean, I'm just thinking in North Carolina, I can't see, you know, acres and acres of flowers being they, grown. They and all those tulips in, in the Netherlands. I mean, the Netherlands is not that warm. Talk, you're the expert. Talk to us oh, here. Like, yeah, absolutely. So um, you're right on both cases. So... Uh, There's a couple of reasons that flowers are grown, um, or the majority of flowers that we consume are grown in uh, South America. And one of the reasons is environment. Um, In Ecuador and Colombia, they are in the perfect region of the world um, where they don't require as many environmental inputs in order to grow like pristine flowers. In addition, yes, some of the inputs, including labor, are less expensive there. And so flowers, which are very price sensitive for many consumers, are less expensive to be grown in those regions. Now, of course, there's some consumers who prefer local, locally grown, etc. And so um, there are flowers in those categories available in the United States. Uh, They might have a little bit higher price tag because of those higher environmental inputs, such as growing in a greenhouse Mm -hmm. instead of outdoors, or labor input, but um, you are insured uh, with that local labeling that it is coming from either North Carolina, the Southeast, or domestically. So you said possibly North Carolina. Some people, because I think of how Christmas trees, you know, up in the mountains of North Carolina, undoubtedly is perfect. The conditions are perfect to grow our Christmas trees there, for example. So I just wondered, is there a flower that's really um, known and grows well in North Carolina that, you know, maybe I could give someone for Valentine's Day. Yes. Okay. So <coughs> funny that you mentioned. Give somebody flowers. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. So um, around this time is, uh, would be tulips. So bulbs, things that are a little bit more on the cool season. But you can also find some local growers, such as in Raleigh and in Durham, who have greenhouses, and they do produce um, flowers 
that require more of that warm season, such as snapdragons. I believe there's also potentially some rose growers in the area, but um, for sure, snapdragons, zinnias, uh, those type of flowers as well. Leonida and I are hanging out with Dr. Melinda Knuth here on Due South, chatting about flowers and uh, all things horticultural. Uh, state flower, I believe, is the dogwood. Um, is 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 that one just to build on this? Is is there an abundance of dogwoods around here? Uh, so dogwoods can be used in floral arrangements, and so um, you would see that, but you couldn't. I don't think that you would be able to buy like a bouquet of just dogwood because it's a hardwood right. branching, right. and so it'd be a bunch of sticks. Got but, it. Be um, it'd be beautiful in an arrangement with other things, but by itself, it's a, it'd be a little bit more difficult. So hot when you. If you receive any flowers for Valentine's Day, you know, what's the best way to take care of the flowers? You don't want them to die overnight, do you? Well, some people have said, once you cut them, they're dead already. You know, I hear that all the time. My wife says that. So but how do you keep them at least looking good for a few days? Yeah. So first of all, I, I do want to say that um, flowers add a lot to our lives as human beings. There's research to show that being around flowers can actually improve your mood and make you happier. It does. Yes. And we have research to back it up, too, which is awesome. You know, as an academic, I'm all about those numbers. So, uh, you know, not only, yes, they do die faster than, for example, a potted plant, but they're still contributing to your life in a positive way. Uh, not only that, but you're communicating with others through the message of your bouquet, what you're trying to, you know, that you love people and you care about them which is a subliminal message that you can send. But should we put some of that little powder stuff in it? Flower and, food. Or some yes, people told me, some people say they put some 7-Up or Sprite in. What? Oh, no. Oh. No, no, oh no. Gosh. Okay. Flower food. And their roses, that they little, say it makes them last that longer. flower powder. Yeah. Little, so yeah. Um, there are the flower packets that you get with a bouquet are specially uh, designed to be best for flowers. So it includes an acidifier in case your water pH is off. Maybe that's what the soda's for. You said 7-Up. Oh, well, Where did you get that idea from? 7-Up <laughs> uh, in the flowers. Most likely what that's doing is providing that sugar that plants want. And so that, which is great, mm. plants need that, especially cut flowers. But lastly, the floral food includes um, an antibacterial agent in it. So when you put 7-Up in your water without that antibacterial agent, you're going to get all that gross, gunky water and all that buildup. Um, and so it's not going to let your flowers last as long as they could if you use floral food. Oh, high fructose corn syrup isn't good for tulips. Who no. knew? Yeah. <laughs> We'll I didn't know. I didn't know. Uh, we've got just a couple of minutes left here. I want to uh, just briefly acknowledge, I really like flowers. When my wife was in PA school, we did not live together for like a year and a half. And I would get flowers, typically from grocery store, Trader Joe's, Harris Teeter. And I'd have them in the house. And sometimes my friends would come, o come over and they'd be like, oh, like, was, was Blair here? And I was like, no. And they're like, what's with the flowers? And I was like, I like them. Like, I just like having them I around. I that. There's been some talk in recent years about how rarely us men receive flower as gifts. Why and how can we change this? Ooh, okay. So um, I think it has a little bit to do with our culture where um, flowers in American culture are seen as a fem feminine thing. And uh, that's not the case because um, especially if we're talking about flowers in general, 
they're complete flowers. So they include both male, female parts. So really, they're for everybody. But anyway. uh, I like that rationale. Yeah. Hey, (laughs) flowers don't have a gender. I don't think that we should put a gender on who enjoys flowers either. I know. So what about potted plants? Potted plants for Valentine's Day. I've seen some tea roses in a potted plant. That should be nice, you think? Are they cuts or are they? No, I think they would look a little bush in a pot or something. Oh, yeah. The little tiny roses. Okay. I'm following now. Yes. So those can be a nice alternative. If you don't want to use cut flowers, you can get the little potted roses. Uh, and those those will last a while as well. Um, usually you can expect them to last a couple of months. I've got a question for both of you. What flowers do you most enjoy receiving? I'm just curious. For me? Yeah, for both of you. I mean, I like, I, I, I'd rather rose gold around my neck. Mm. <laughs> okay. In my ears. <laughs> Jewelry. No, I... Now, I'll take any flower. I mean, I like sunflowers any time of year. My favorite, um, so since I'm a PhD in horticulture, I'm pretty specific. I Um, was expecting nothing less, yeah. (laughs) So I really like uh, the dark blue delphiniums. Um, They're one of the few true blue flowers that occur naturally. There's maybe a handful of 20 that exist in the world and that occur naturally naturally. And so um, that that's just a, a stunning flower That's I think is just very cool. Well, you know what? Thank you so much, Dr. Melinda Knuth, Assistant Professor of Horticulture Science at NC State University. Thanks for being here, and happy Valentine's Day. Yeah, happy Valentine's Day to you guys, too. Thank you. This is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonida Inge. Growing up in Florida, it always seemed so lush and green. But sometimes, traveling down the highway, I would see these trees that looked like monsters wrapped in these villainous vines that weren't strong enough to climb. Today, these vines can produce a lemonade-like beverage and has even led to the creation of a nonprofit in western North Carolina that wants to bring public awareness to its uses for food, fiber, and art. What am I talking about? That's the Red Clay Ramblers from Kutzu, a southern musical. Alexis Hawk recently wrote about Kutzu for The Bitter Southerner. The title of the article, Of Vines and Villains, Kutzu's Twisted History and Climb Toward Redemption. Jeff Tiberi and I talked with Alexis about Kutzu's long and winding history, and it became clear that it's something that has been on her mind since she was a child. Where I grew up in Atlanta, um, kudzu is pretty legendary, and I recall it from uh, my early childhood. Um, There was a huge kudzu patch behind our house that uh, my brother and I used to like to go and kind of marvel at, um, and we would also swing on some of the kudzu vines. So to give you a visual, basically, you know, this, this looks when you see where kudzu has sort of taken over. You know, it basically looks like this these rolling waves of just green. The the leaf itself of the kudzu plant kind of looks like this large, flat, almost heart shape. 
But really what you take in is just the immensity of how vast it grows. It climbs up trees. It climbs over basically anything that's in its path. And when I was uh, growing up, I mean, I, just kudzu patches were almost everywhere you looked in places where, you know, it just sort of had had been let to, you know, to grow um, at will. Um, and, you know, when I say it's legendary, it's also because, you know, there was a lot of ink devoted uh, in my local paper. And then also, you know, I just remember people talking about kudzu as sort of this scourge on the landscape, right, that would just smother everything. But, you know, to me, it also looked um, kind of kind of almost mythical, um, you know, when I would pass by a kudzu patch. I remember being very fascinated by just the sea of green. It's a plant that's native to Japan and parts of China. It came here, you know, as you allude to, um, a long time ago, a century ago. What is the kudzu line and what has led to, I don't know, it's it, the, hatred's a strong word, but the Invasive hatred Invasive species, that's what it is. Yeah. So um, in brief, it did come over as part of the World's Fair in the late 19th century. That's when a lot of sources point to as sort of the the original time that it arrived here. And it was kind of used as this, you know, decorative plant, because like I said, it is, even if it's, uh, it's quite villainous in a lot of views, it, you know, I think everybody can agree it's, it's quite beguiling in a lot of ways to look at. Uh, and then in the 1930s, you know, and I think this is the story of a lot of invasive species. Every region has its hated invasive species, whether it's plants or insects. And this is actually what, you know, really fascinated me about it. Um, but, you know, I think often invasive species are brought in um, to solve a problem as sort of a quick solution to um, something that, you know, is troubling a lot of people, particularly maybe farmers or, you know, is affecting an industry. And in this case, it was seen as, you know, okay, here's a plant that grows really quickly. It was all the reasons that we now hate it, basically, were the reasons why they thought, oh, this would be, you know, great um, as a way of helping with soil erosion. So the idea was, you know, we'll plant this, it's very hardy plant, you know, it grows really quickly. And, um, you know, it will help us to... Um, keep the soil uh, together to, you know, it's, it's actually a very rich vine, um, you know, it's, it's nutrient rich, you know, but the problem was that, you know, anytime you bring in and introduce a new plant to an area where the native plants are, are not used to it, um, you know, it will, and, and there are not natural predators, you know, there's not sort of, it doesn't fit with the, the ecosystem that it's coming into. A lot of times, you know, we see over and over, it will dominate everything. You know, it will sort of take over. And Alexis, um, farmers but, got paid to grow this. Yes. In in the 1930s, farmers were paid quite handsomely, actually, um, to plant acres and acres of kudzu. And a lot of this was, you know, they, they were really being, um, there were these proselytizers. You know, um, I talk about Channing Cope, who wrote for the Atlanta Constitution in the 1940s and 50s. And he was a big proponent of kudzu and how this was sort of the miracle. You know, he called it, uh, you know, sent from God, basically, to help farmers. Um, but yes, farmers were paid about $8 per acre um, to plant kudzu. So it, it becomes something of this agricultural and cultural phenomenon. Uh, and then things start to change a little bit in the 50s and 60s. Tell us what happened and why. 
Yeah. So as best I can tell, you know, basically it took a couple decades from when there were these kudzu parades and kudzu pageants in the 1940s and people were celebrating kudzu to basically uh, realizing that it was extremely hard to control. You know, the roots grow extremely deep. Um, the vines, you know, creep along at a, a really fast pace. And so by the 1970s, um, things had shifted and the USDA actually declared it um, as one of the worst weeds in the country. Um, so actually, that was the first time that it was listed as officially a weed instead of, you know, this plant that they were encouraging people to plant. Alexis Hawk is here with us on Due South. We're chatting about kudzu uh, and some of the pop culture, I don't know, spinoffs or, or threads that are uh, important to understanding it and its place within the South. Tell us who the kudzu warriors are and, and what it is they seek to accomplish. Yeah, so um, the Kudzu Warriors, uh, they're based in Western North Carolina. Um, I met up with them in specifically Tryon, North Carolina, but it, which is very close to Asheville. I think the time that I met up with them, it was about 20 people. So it's actually pretty robust group of regulars who um, go out, uh, spend their uh, Monday morning going up onto various hillsides in parks and, uh, you know, in some of the mountain ranges Um to dig up the root crowns of the kudzu that has really taken over a lot of the, the mountainsides um, in that area. Um, and they've, they've been working um, diligently for about 10 years um, and have actually have made incremental but, uh, but definitely noticeable progress in um, cutting back on the amount of kudzu that's growing on the mountainside. Mm, that's re remarkable. I was wondering if these warriors were actually getting anything done and if if it was <laughs> if it was noticeable at all because right. well, let's say Katsu can grow a foot a day it just keeps going <laughs> i mean it's you know that and i did ask them about that you know is this the task of sisyphus right you know are we just sort of cutting it back and then it grows right back but you know they did point to there is a contrast because right across the road, um, you know, there was the, the mountainside that we were working on. Um, and then across the way, there was a privately owned property that just had, you know, kudzu as far as the eye could see. And, you know, they said, basically, this side, you know, started out the same as that one. Um, and what they do is, you know, they go when it's cold out, when the leaves are not in bloom, when it's just the vines, um, you know, basically wintertime, um, they go in and that's when they can really get to the roots. And it is, it is hard work. I was out there with, you know, all the tools, you know, digging and trying to, you know, and I, my back began to hurt after like an hour, but they do take advantage when it's not actually, when the leaves are not out um, to try to get as much done uh, pulling up the roots as they can. So did you do your part in eating the kudzu? Did you try that, Alexis? I mean, <laughs> because we know this organization was, is it kudzu culture? You know, we talk about the mm -hmm. teas that they make and, you know, the different food. Is that tasty? That would be probably the only way to get rid of kudzu. It's got to make it to rest on the plate. <laughs> Um, you know, so, well, and I will, I mean, it, with the kudzu warriors, when we went to coffee afterward, uh, one of the volunteers had brought this like tincture to add to your coffee. Um, if, uh, you know, that had been made from, uh, I guess, kudzu root, but I did connect with a chef in Athens, Georgia, who, you know, one of the features of her restaurant, um, homemade is uh, foraged food. 
And so um, she does cook with kudzu. She has told me I wasn't able to taste any of her dishes with the leaves because at the time that I was um, interviewing her, you know, the leaves weren't out. So they, you know, wouldn't, she wouldn't have been able to collect any um, to be fresh, but she does put them in things like quiches. And she said that they're not great on their own, um, that they're they're pretty tough. Um, but what she did let me taste was a kudzu lemonade that she makes with the flour, which has been boiled down into a simple syrup. Um, it's kind of purplish pink. Um, it smells like grape Kool-Aid. Um, and, you know, basically you take it, you add some lemon juice to it, and it sort of changes colors as you swirl it around. And, you know, it was it was yummy. I mean, um, it tasted a lot like Kool-Aid. So I did get to try that. that. That sounds to me like something that could be family friendly for a picnic, could use something a little bit stronger if you're at like a tailgate. Are there <laughs> is, is this a mixer potentially? It is actually. So she does make both the kid-friendly version of just the lemonade, and then um, you can add a, a liquor to it if you would like. So, um, you know, that's their, she calls it the electric Kool-Aid lemonade. Well, thank you very much, Alexis Hawk, for being here. And we just want to tell kids, don't swing on those vines. Like Alexis, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Alexis Hawk wrote about kudzu for The Bitter Southerner. She's a freelance writer who also works in healthcare communications. Before we say goodbye, Jeff had some thoughts on his performance in that interview. I call them welcome to the South moments. I had one when I first moved here in 2006. Mm. I was at the DMV and I was like, can we speed this up, lady, to the person <gasps> in front of me? No, I, in my head. I didn't actually say wow. that out loud. But I just had another welcome to the South moment because I just kept mispronouncing kudzu. I kept saying kudzu. I told you how to pronounce it, though. And I, I, wasn't, I wasn't, like, actively not listening to you. I was just in my own head on it. This is, but, like, I don't think I'm alone. I think this, like, this is what happens to, to people throughout Cary uh, and people throughout the Triangle and other Northerners like me. Kudzu, kudzu, we don't, we don't have this where I grew up. And I grew up kudzu. with kudzu, and that's why I told you this is how to pronounce it. And that's that. You've been listening to Do South on WUNC. Our producers are Stacia Brown, Coldell Charco, and Rachel McCarthy. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Our executive producer is Aaron Kiever. Our theme music is by Quilla. Thanks for listening. <laughs>